song out of the uh, ca- uh, mu- uh, the musical cabaret. <laughs> I, I was joking. He even sounds German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Uh, you had originally asked the question about uh, Achan Mun because Eric is at the Wat at Achan Mun. And I was basically saying that part of the situation is, is that the, the Thai forest tradition, there is not a lot of distinctions between the various teachers other than uh, not because of the location, but because of the place that that particular teacher is in. So the teacher will teach what he wants to know or what he knows best. And so in many times, the students will be given information that's beyond them, but they'll take it from both it's the master and it's wonderful stuff, and two, he gave it to me, therefore it is for me and a beginner. Mm-hmm. All right. It only only after a long time of looking at all of this do we begin to understand that, oh no, the actual, all of these various methods of meditation wind up being actual techniques that are valuable, wholesome, and useful at certain stages along one's practice, but not all methods are useful at all stages. And that has a really good, interesting quality to it because we have, I've even heard students say, oh, I want to hear about your technique as if mine's special or unique or something. No, it's not. (laughs) If there is any way of looking at it, it would be that um, either the very, the suttas, the very beginning, the very early stuff that the Buddha talked about, or the later literature. And that one of the uh, crowning jewels of the later literature is what's called the Vasudhimaga that came out of the 5th century AD. And for quite a while, in fact, still is, it's all the rage, especially in Sri Lanka and in Burma, but it's uh, losing and has for a long time lost its luster in Thailand. And that uh, one of the conversations that Robert and I have had has been that we both can see evidence that over time, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa withdrew more and more from the Vasudhimaga back to the suttas. And so in that regard, the way that I teach is much more towards the suttas which then you could say is much more for the beginning student to get started correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, be, because there, there comes a point when uh, the practice becomes solid enough and good enough that what we're doing now is enough And then there's the other option is is that now that our uh, beginner's practice is good enough and solid enough, now it's time to move on to higher things. Uh All right. Now, what the Westerner's mind does is is that, okay, I'm ready. I want to higher things now. Well, wait a minute. You haven't, um, 
you haven't gotten the basics down yet. Mm-hmm. Never <laughs> mind. I don't need the basics. I want the hydronas, you see. And that uh, some students go into what we would call, they want to go very deep. <laughs> I've, even, I've even had a, a student of long term. He's, um, let us say, some students are difficult because they keep asking questions about what they learned at other places. Mm-hmm. And it begins to get to be kind of a gamey kind of thing that goes by, yes, but I heard this over there. Or what about this and what about that? So finally I get the guy to practice. The next time he comes back, he says, but this this method that we're talking about doesn't take me deep. Mm-hmm. And that's something that really clicked right in with me, yes. It, we're not trying to go deep. We're trying to wake up. I mean, that's what the word Buddha means. <laughs> Give me a break already. What's this going deep stuff? Uh-huh. Uh, and there's so many clear observations of that. In, in, in fact, one of them is the quality of the Zen stick. Because the Zen stick is to wake the students up. If the students are woken up, that, uh, that the teacher knows, that the student knows, that both of them know, that each other know, then he doesn't get hit. But if the teacher comes up behind the student and the teacher doesn't know that the teacher is behind him, he's the one who gets hit. Now, it doesn't matter whether he's in daydreaming or whether he's deep in meditation. Either way, he's going to get hit. Because mm-hmm. he's not aware of what's going on around him. That, in fact, this is part of the quality of why martial arts and the teachings of the Buddha through meditation have such a wide gap of um, connectivity. And that has to do with, if you're not here now, you're going to get hit in the face. Mm. Okay? If you're, if you're not here now, when that uh, a Zen master comes in, you're going to get whacked with that stick. Yeah. Is that, is that the first noble truth? Does it have to do anything with that? Pardon? Does it have anything to do with the first noble truth? Oh, the Zen stick is constructed in such a way that it makes a racket intentionally. It's yeah, not painful. But, but, no, I know, but, but to wake up to see the... Uh, uh, Mara, <laughs> or okay, whatever. yes, oh, oh, yes, oh, yes, exactly. No, this is all about sati, oh. which, which is the, which has the foundation of right uh, uh, view, samaditi, okay. to wake up. Okay? okay, yes, this is what this is all about: is to wake up, mm-hmm. yeah, rather than going to sleep. Now, one of the things about the first jhana, which is a very, very wakeful state where we have rapture and uh, a sukha. We have uh, uh, a bright, shiny mind. We can see things clearly. And this state needs to be developed both in the ability to get into it and the ability to maintain it. And that this also is the state when we're going to be able to get the, our best insights into the sense of, I don't want to mess with you no more. 
which is exactly the word of atamayata. That's the word, okay, atam means I'm not going to mess or I'm not going to do maya. So first, aha, I see you, maya, begins or winds up being atamayata, or the throwing it out, relinquishment, <laughs> getting rid of it. Okay. Uh, and so once we have the mind in that kind of state, then that mind can stay in that kind of state simply by keeping the maya out, by being on guard. All right. But in the process of doing that, we've been narrowing the mind down. We've been putting a, 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 the mind in sort of a pasture in the sense that we won't let the mind wander so far away that it wanders into hindrances and pulls us out of this marvelous state. So we keep, we, we, it's like we fence off paradise in a way. But by doing that fencing off, we're actually, actually beginning to control the mind. We're actually learning to control the mind like this. This is the beginning stuff. Once we get to the point of being able to control the mind so that we can make the distinction only wholesome thoughts are allowed and unwholesome thoughts are not allowed, that leaves us several, that leaves us some room. One of the rooms that we can play in would be the room of the Dhamma as the way the Buddha teaches it by looking at how things are right now in the sense of this is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. That's the beginning to see how the mind works. This is what it's like to be free from dukkha. Mm -hmm. All right. So mm -hmm. this now becomes a, a very small area of our knowledge of what we're beginning to work with to start thinking about third noble truth. This is really nice. And so we get into that state and we do it by shutting the mind down or let us say forbidding it from going off into most of the places where it always goes to. The past, the future, just normal worry, just the monkey mind jumping around. Now we're not going to let the monkey mind jump all over the place. We're only going to let that monkey mind jump in this tree. <laughs> and these thoughts can be nonverbal as well. They can be nonverbal. In fact, most thoughts are nonverbal. And they're nonverbal at two levels. One is preverbal, and the other one is completely emotional or completely feeling. Okay, right. and it depends upon... And it depends upon... Uh, Sorry for the developmental psychology right now, but, <laughs> yeah, <okay>. that, <laughs> but that depends upon the age of the child at which that trauma would be registered as to whether the child himself was pre-verbal or not, <laughs> so that the child does not have to make concepts of it, but he still got it. He is pre-verbal, but darn tootin' it's a kind of a thought. I apply so, yes. that in the now. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of childish even now, so I apply it for now. <laughs> yes, we, 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 were, we actually, not only was that the only way that we could think, mm. 
but that that's the habit that we got in before mm. verbal. Mm. And so actually getting back to that stage should be easier than we would think. Uh-huh. Okay, that basically instead of taking and, thin, and peeling off one thin layer at a time, we can grab the whole show, the whole paint job, and rip it off and go right down to that very basic, uh, 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 and then it's pre-verbal. Now we don't have any language for it, but I'll make a few ca- sounds that you can understand in that regard. <laughs> Those are the kinds of sounds that come with that level um, uh, of thought. Because they're definitely thinking in there. Uh, that's one thing that really, really, I knew many years ago when I was around dogs, when I was around hunting dogs and the way that the people... Uh, who were managing the dogs, and I understood that dogs can think. Now I see it all the time. These dogs think. They don't think in the language that we think in, but they're smart, and they think things through. Mm-hmm. And they don't do it with language. So you can't say that, well, dogs don't think because they don't use the language that we do. But some people in America think that Jesus spoke English. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Dogs are also really good at learning uh, people's language, so they understand what what is what. <clears throat> Isn't that interesting? In that regard, the dogs are smarter than humans because yeah. dogs are able to pick up that um, yeah. cross-species uh, communication, and mm-hmm. the humans can't. Yeah. Mm. Part of it, I guess, is they think that they're superior or better than the dogs. Mm -hmm. In fact, in some respects, dogs are smarter. Mm -hmm. But anyway, back to the point that that we're getting at here is that level of the mind that we learn to control at the verbal level also has mental components, too, that in fact, um, in... Several different suttas, because I asked Robert to look these up for me, because uh, his poly is good and his tie is excellent. Mm-hmm. And so if I need to find out what the poly or the poly was translated into the tie is, and so this is one of the projects that we had was this quality of the word sita, is which is translated as mind in almost all cases or chit, okay, sat chitanand or chitanupasana uh, um, uh, or all of those kind of things, which is what we're actually talking about now, or in fact the chitta sankara is where it's the most striking is is that chitta sankara is not vocal sankara. That was kind of thought, thinking that you were talking about. But chitta sankara in the Thai is translated as the word jai, which means heart or emotion. Mm-hmm. So in many cases, the word chitta does not actually mean only the thinking part of the mind. It's either both or, in fact, uh, the feeling is the predominant part. Mm. Now, in a way, I'm kind of surprised to have to tell this to anybody because everybody says, sure, I mean, duh. Of course, the the emotional part of our thinking mind is more powerful than the thinking part that uses language. 
unfortunately we can't do we have trouble communicating at that level that mm. in fact we have this is what the what art is really all about in all of its uh, glory and, and ways including uh, the various kinds of visual arts and movies and dance and uh, theater of all kinds is trying to express emotion because their English language is a thought or conceptualized language and it does not create by the language itself the feelings that we want to convey. And so if a monk is trying to convey a particular uh, message that has a uh, particular emotional component to it and yet he sits there uh, and drones on and on as if you can't even see his mouth moving and he talks and everybody's starting to go to sleep, then how can he really talk <laughs> about these deep and underlying emotions? And yet for some reason there's a lot of monks that think that they have to be trained to speak in that monotone uh, way like that. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the Dhamma can't be taught to the beginners like that. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, uh, or in the early part of the practice, we have to uh, convey enthusiasm by enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Yep. We have to light the fire of the student, that the student is, becomes enthusiastic about the Dhamma. Then that's, that's the real job. That's mm-hmm. the real job. And I think that that would be true of any teacher teaching any subject at university. And I've seen yeah. teachers actually compete with students by trying to get the student excited about this particular thing. I remember one college professor really wanted me to go into transportation science. Mm-hmm. You know, the architecture of using computer simulations to uh, check bus routes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He could not get me excited about that. (laughs) So, um, this this whole idea of becoming enthusiastic is really what the first jhana is all about also, is to teach the the student that they, in fact, can control their own mind. And they can, in fact, do with it what they want. That this is part of the experiment with the first jhana, is for the student to come to con- come to the conclusion that they in fact can clean out the mind, set it up as a nice pad to live in, and enjoy the heck out of it. That's all we have to do in the first jhana. So that means a whole lot of cleaning out. This is what we're meaning now, is the more we clean out, then the less thought area we will allow the mind so that it gets smaller and smaller. One of the ways that it can get smaller is by uh, doing a particular, um, uh, one particular chant or one particular um, uh, set of verses over and over and over again. And that will get the mind settled down. Now, if you give that to a raw beginner, it will be hard for him to learn, hard for him to memorize, and uh, it may in fact have some value in its own training. But it's only after we are actually able to get the mind into that 
state of wholesome versus unwholesome so that we can maintain this first jhana. Only then, then, as in fact the fruit of the first jhana then is being able to get the mind into a smaller and smaller box. So down to the, to the level of mantra. This is where the mantra is really good, is that when you're using a mantra, when that's all you've got to say. Nothing else is going on in there. All you've got to say is boo and do, or om namah shivaya, or ram, ram, whatever your mine is. My favorite is Coca Cola. <laughs> 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 whatever whatever mantra gets your goat and puts you into that state of bliss so that you're really really solid you're focused your mind is sharp it's alert but nearly empty doesn't it get fact, full <laughs> pardon doesn't it get full by that coca-cola then <laughs> 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 well, there's a story behind that. When I was very young, I was sick, about the age of three, and the doctor recommended Coca-Cola for the stomach ache. Okay. And that's the first time that I'd had it, because being from a poor family, and wow, was that special. Okay. <laughs> and so I use that now. When Tam, when, from time to time, gets Coca-Cola, I, I always go, ah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess if there was any kind of addiction that I'd pick up, it would be for Coca-Cola. <laughs> but meanwhile, back to the mantra is the last thing that we say before we can come to that next out breath after the, um, the dough from Boo Dough and the out breath. Now we're going to let the mind just stop because we've got the breath out. And it may be a while because we've been energized for quite a while with all of this good breathing. So we can last that out breath for 5, 10, 15 seconds watching the mind being completely quiet. Mm -hmm. Now what happens at that point is people then really get excited. Yippee, I got it. And by doing the yippee, I got it, they pull themselves right back out of that second jhana. Here it goes again. It's up there and talking. And saying, Look at what I did. Look at what I did. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> the mind had to start up to experience the fact that the mind had stopped. Yeah. And so that becomes the first barrier, is how can we get the mind to stop and to stay stopped while we take in that next breath without the mind starting up or without the mind getting excited? Because, in fact, that excitement is really what the development of the second jhana is, is trying to manage that the excitement while the mind is completely quiet when because in this regard that what we mean by the mind being completely quiet is that it's not it's not completely quiet but the thinking that's the verbal part of it is quiet and now we have all of this background noise that becomes quite loud 
that background noise is all of the feelings that we're in, which is mm -hmm. kind of turmoil. It's really big, <clears throat> not unpleasant at all. In fact, the whole point is to begin to enjoy the pleasantness. <clears throat> and so let's back up a bit just for a moment for, because I want to give you an analogy. The analogies that, uh, that the suttas give for these jhanas. The first jhana, uh, they use the analogy of the bath powder. But my analogy is because my grandmother made biscuits. Mm -hmm. And so she left that, uh, that wheat powder out and she did exactly what the analogy in this is, is that the bath powder man or uh, the, the nurse in the, uh, uh, the bathhouse did exactly what my grandmother did. Take her t fingertips, dip it into water, and then sprinkle it on the dough or the yet-to-be dough powder. And this is how we actually do that. We take the dry, ordinary, hindered mind and we sprinkle joy on it to the point that it becomes kind of a solid, gooey, oozy, not dripping uh, ball of dough is basically how the first jhana is, is spoken of. But now the second jhana has the, uh, uh, the quality of an artesian well. Now, do you know what I mean by an artesian well? It's a natural spring that has been um, uh, surrounded by dirt and mud to, with a dam so as to make a sp small pond or a lake. But one of the qualities of a spring is, is that if it, especially the bigger it is, that it will gush so that you have two different layers of water temperature, the normal temperature of a small pond, and then the basis of the water coming into this thing, which is much colder. And it's, and it's not bubbling because there's no bubbles there. But you can imagine or think of it in the sense that the bubbles are, in fact, the mixtures of the uh, cold and the hot, as well as the fact that there's a lot of turbulence in there. I used to have a well that was like that. That's a really surprise. When I saw that in the suit, I said, darn, I know exactly what he's talking about. Uh -huh. Because us kids, we used to, uh, to dive down to this artesian world, uh, uh, well just for the auxiliary, it was better than any roller coaster, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> and so the second jhana is, is like that. It's beginning to get really in touch with all of this turbulence that we have that's going on below the thought level. Mm -hmm. But we can only see it after we quieten the mind down to the point of getting all the noise of the thought machine out because that's the predominant way that we think that we think. To where, in fact, underneath that is the source of all of those thoughts that bubble up. And so the second jhana then is actually um, a requirement of the first jhana plus additional skills in getting the mind to be quiet. This is nothing like the, the idea that most Westerners have about going deep in meditation. When they go deep in meditation, it's got something different about it. One of the things that it has is, is they generally are not breathing very well. 
Another quality of it is is that they tend to think that it has to be going on for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Like they have to sit for an hour, an hour and a half, or, or something like that, where we understand it. No, the practice of this skill is to bring it so that we can get into it fairly easily and fairly quickly and maintain it, uh-huh. yeah. which is different from sitting for a long, long time. But if you think about sitting and working at something for a long, long time while you're bent over and not breathing properly, the mind's going to get really dull. It's not going to be asleep. Hmm. I think that's what was kind of happening to me when I first started meditating 20 years ago. I kind of cut off everything, all emotion, everything. And I was, I guess, completely in my mind and very... uh, concentrated and uh, there was no life in there it was very dry and very and then i Uh read about it and there was some i I think there was some uh, one saying that it's a spiritual cul-de-sac is is that the the word it was uh, uh uh yeah it didn't go anywhere Precisely so, and yet that's the place that I think that most Western meditators who try to meditate from a book wind up in that hole, Mm -hmm. in that Mm cul-de-sac. They can also follow some traditions. I think that it's quite easy for people who do noting meditation through the Mahasi to wind up in that Mm cul-de-sac. That's an interesting way to say it. Uh Uh-huh. My thought is, is that if you got into that state while you were in a, a zendo, you get whacked. Okay. Because <laughs> okay. uh-huh. mm. we're not there. We're not aware of what's going on around us to where the jhanas really bring us up to a very heightened awareness of things. Yeah. And joyful. It's, it's so... Very joyful. And yeah. uh, it has many, many high quality uh-huh. states. But I don't see any place in the suttas other than the long breath where it talks about deep on any point. Mm-hmm. That this is not a practice to go deep. This is a practice to wake up yeah. to come up. Another one which is really, really important characteristic is, is that the, of the teaching of the Buddha, he says specifically, I teach only one thing, and that is dukkha, dukkha yeah. naroda. Mm-hmm. And yet when people practice the way that we're talking about here of going deep, normally what they do is that they're, they don't remove the hindrances right. because that takes yep. a kind of effort. And they're not taking the right effort. This also they talk about it in the sense of choiceless awareness. Yeah. So here we are in choiceless awareness and not removing the hindrances and we're doing it for a long time. And naturally people are going to get insights. Because they're going to be able to see dukkha. The question is, can they see their way out of it? Yeah. Can mm. they go dukkha, dukkha, naroda? Or are they going to say, dukkha, oh, I see you, dukkha. Oh, here's that dukkha. Oh, great insight out of this dukkha. I'm surprised at this dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha, and some more dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> Agnes has had so much dukkha, she's off the air. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I just need to plug in my uh, computer. <laughs> yes, I saw you reach towards your computer yes. and then you went blank. So I don't yes. know what you touched or unplugged. But anyway, 
That's not what the Buddha teaches. He does not teach the investigation of dukkha. He only says dukkha, dukkha, naroda in the sense of look at it, see it clearly, understand the nature of it, and come out of it. Yeah. And yet, um, somewhere in the world, and I think that it has actually to do with our culture, and it has to do with our culture on two levels. One is the, uh, the level of the, the, um, the worker and the boss in the sense that you don't get paid for what you do now. We'll pay you later. Yeah. You have to wait for your reward. That mentality is uh, really in our culture at so many different la- levels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Eat your vegetables and then you can have your dessert. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that one before? Okay. Yep. <laughs> All right. That's always that whole quality of postponing pleasure to get the work done. Yeah. Now, at the highest level, that means that you got to wait until you're dead before <laughs> you get the benefits for being good when you were alive, because you're not going to get the benefits of being good while you are alive. Yeah, but I think that may have something to do, it's a little sociology here. Uh, it's the, uh, the uh, capitalist uh, spirit and the Protestant ethics. It's Max Weber, or uh, he, he wrote about that. Perhaps you yes. heard of him, yeah. So <clears throat> it goes together that postponing the rewards in the future. Precisely. And so when Westerns with that Western mindset uh, approach meditation, they, uh, they understand that because uh, they've heard, oh, if you practice meditation, you can have great bliss. Yes. And that was part of the attachment or the attraction, especially 40, 50, 60 years ago. So everybody runs to the dojo or to the Dhamma Hall or whatever, and they sit down and says, hmm, where's my bliss? Mm-hmm. Where's my bliss? <laughs> I ain't no bliss here. And so somebody will kindly come up and say, patience, my child, patience. <laughs> and yeah. they say, all right, I want patience, but I want my patience right bloody now. Where's my bliss? You know? <laughs> <laughs> And so eventually they settle into, oh, I've got to have this choiceless awareness thing going, and then I will see what's going on, and then I will be rewarded with the bliss. Yeah. I've even heard some people say that the dukkha becomes exhausted. Mm. Mm. No, it's not going to get exhausted. The bottom of that pit, we don't want to go all the way to the bottom of it. We don't really want to go that deep, please. (laughs) (laughs) No, right. Let's not go there. Let's see dukkha as dukkha, which means worthwhile of getting out of it before we have to get so deep into it. Yeah. But that's what the waking up process is. And in fact, when we're fully fully awake, then it's easy to avoid. Yeah. So there's no reason to go down into it. And I think that that kind of situation is the reason why uh, there seems to be kind of a duality in in teaching methods. 
But really, the Mahasi method and the way that it's taught in the book just doesn't emphasize exactly the right things. And so the students themselves are the ones who are making this mistake about, oh, I've got to go deep. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think the book is going to tell them that. Yeah. I think everything about Sati has to do with wake up, not not <laughs> go deep into it. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Um, this is uh, kind of in, sh- in, in a shorthand view of that second jhana. So let's continue on with that. The real second jhana or the fruit of the second jhana then would be um, being able to manage all of those feelings and to become kind of at home or at peace with them. In other words, we're beginning to really understand our territory. That's the value of the second jhana, is to really, really understand the territory. Because in the third uh, jhana, the analogy is like a lotus flower that is strong enough when it's, when it's young and when it's uh, not strong. In a brook or a, a running creek, it's been over and underwater. But once the stem gets strong enough, it comes out. It opens its leaves, and the leaves are dry. They're not wet. In other words, the, uh, the lotus did not, even though it was underwater, it was not saturated or consumed by the water. This is also what we mean about now the bright, shiny mind can actually come above our, all of that rumbling mess of feelings that we have there. That's where we can do that. So the third, the third jhana is doing for the Sita Nupasana the way the verbal Nupasana was managed in the second jhana. Mm -hmm. Is to go into the third jhana means we can bring that stuff to a a kind of placid place. But another way of thinking about it is, no, this is what we mean now about equanimity or having sea legs for our own rumbling mess and under there that we can we can dance on it as if it were a solid flat four because we've got that kind of handle on it so uh this is now where the mind is really really specially sharp going into the fourth jhana where we now can release the body this is where anapanasati is no more value because now the breathing has gotten so small and so slow but in fact one way of talking about it is the fourth jhana is about as close to death as one can bring oneself intentionally and then take themselves back out intentionally because we've let go of the thought process we've let go of the uh, 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 the feeling process now we're letting go of the body and this is where we can go down deep into the mind. This is where, in fact, uh, the understanding of Paticca Samapada really comes into play, is in this fourth jhana. How is that? Well, this is down at the level to where your mind is sharp enough that you can begin to see the distinction between what is consciousness and what is perception, so that you know them because uh, the mind is, is sharp and how can we get that sharp is because we have already now subdued the, the sankaras both the verbal 
and the uh, uh, emotional, which means now the reception machine has kind of run out of its database or is kind of spinning its wheels. It's kind of got no place to go. So there's nothing that comes to mind in the sense of conceptualizing anything. This is the level when, uh, at that fourth jhana, is why we hear these four weird things like infinite space, infinite consciousness, uh, neither perception or non-perception, and nothingness. You're both shaking your head. You, you've heard of this stuff, right? And yeah. nobody ever understands it at all. <laughs> Except when we do understand it. What we mean by infinite uh, space is in fact that our, the boundaries of the body's sensational system, the emotional sensation of uh, the body, has now been kind of shut down. So the actual boundaries of where our skin or where the nerve contacts are becomes indistinct. Mm-hmm. Another one is the same kind of thing happens with our proprioceptic sensing system, which basically has a whole lot to do with gravity more than touch does. The position of the body and our balance and our maintenance like that. So we begin to get uh, perceptional um, uh, exaggerations, like the body is 60 feet tall, or that it's flying or floating in the air, or that in fact there's no body at uh, no body there. That what there is is like a shimmering blob or something. In fact, that's the example that is used in the suttas. Is imagine that the body is being covered with a with a shimmering sheet. And so your your so the the skin um, connections are hidden under the sheet, or they're therefore indistinct. That we become kind of a floating blob. Uh, because all of the boundaries of the body are, are indistinct, and also uh, the proprioceptic sensing system doesn't see things as distinct anymore. Why? Because we're shutting down the part of the brain that does all of that work for us. So we're systematically shutting down the body, and that's actually the hallmark of the fourth jhana, because basically we've already shut down the senses one at a time already anyway. So once we're beginning to shut down the body, that's the proprioceptic and the touch sensations. Now what that leaves us is almost no input for processing. All we have is the original exterior input, which is very, very small. Because the eyes are closed, you're sitting there in the silence and the darkness and there's no place to go and nothing to do and you know. And, and now there's nothing coming in and there's nothing to process with. And so now that's when we begin to understand that it's not that consciousness is infinite. That's, in fact, it's a crazy idea that got into the suttas with the words infinite. For one thing, a division by zero didn't exist until mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years later. So the whole idea of infinity is gone. But what is there is a the concept of bounds, the bounds become loose, just like the bounds for the body or the boundaries of the, of the body, the boundary between consciousness and perception gets loosened up. And so we begin to see consciousness 
but the only way we can see consciousness is with whatever perception there is left. This is what's the quality of neither perception nor non-perception, because now perception is basically shut down. There's no input. Consciousness is there, right? And then when you completely separate consciousness from uh, perception, that's when there's nothing left. Now there's nothing. This is about as close to being dead as you can be and still be alive because there will be another breath. You haven't done anything inside. I mean, everything that was functional is functional. You haven't broken anything. You haven't broken a heart or busted a gut or anything. You just put the mind at a state that's as close to death as it can possibly go. Mm. Now the question is, why bother? <laughs> Other than doing it once or twice and getting a load up and saying, yeah, that's what that is. <laughs> and so the only possibility for these guys that are spending 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day in meditation is because they're still wanting something out of it. Because once you get to the end of it, that's what the Buddha says. Okay, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Let me out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they wanted him to take over that whole school of meditation. He said, this is not what I'm looking for. It may be the very top that you can go in this skill, but it's not the end of suffering. That's when he threw out all the suttas, or excuse me, all of the jhanas, but then he brought back all that first jhana. That's the one that's got the real value. That in fact, the, that first jhana is, is kind of like the ground floor, that if you can do the higher jhanas, okay, but when you come out of them, where are you going to go? Back into hindrance again? Because that's what most of them would do. The Buddha's recommendation, instead of going back out of the jhanas into hindrances, because that's just two ends of the same um, uh, pendulum at the extreme. That the way that we're describing it here, the middle path is actually the first jhana. Why? Because we're free from hindrances. We're not harming ourselves either. Nor are we lusting after those very, very high states. That we're satisfied. We're good to go. This is great. I like this first jhana. It'll be, you know, it's like a first class ticket. I don't need the captain's chair. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, this is this is why they also talk about uh, samatha and uh, vipassana to be put together, because this is the way that we're doing it by getting the mind really fit to work and staying in this first jhana. That's the place to really see dukkha, to get the insights about it, not wallowing in it. Mm. I mean, I can really understand a bear without having to wrestle with him. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that that's the, the, the big difference between the, uh, the, the, let us say, Buddhism out of a book and Buddhism out of the Thai forest tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Either of you have any question about this? This has been a fun talk. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. I really got yes. a lot out of it. So thank you so much. Yeah, it helps a lot. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, Jintan, do you have any questions about this? Um, yeah, sort of. Um, so what, what I've found is um, related to the first jhana um, is I, I remember reading a sutta where the uh, Buddha says he split his thoughts up into, into two categories, um, the unwholesome and the wholesome. You actually found a sutta for that. Please give me the reference. Um, I'll send you a message because okay. uh, I can't remember it right now. Um, he said that he split his thinking up into those two categories. So thoughts to do with sensual desire, ill will and harmfulness were to be abandoned and thoughts to do with renunciation, non-ill will and harmlessness were to be cultivated. Right. Um, and I found that that's really good with um, Anapanasati um, because it really helps sort of understand why you're saying no to certain thoughts and why you're allowing other thoughts. Um, okay. Do you think that that kind, of, that kind of works with it? Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, I do know that sutta that you're talking about. I just don't remember. I, I think, in fact, that, that reference is in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. But the quality that you're talking about is dividing the thoughts up into these two classifications. Yep. Okay, sensual desire or renunciation from sensual desire, ill will or abstinence from ill will. Um, um, what was the third? Oh, right. Uh, Harmfulness and harmlessness. Harmlessness, uh, abstinence, right. And so that's exactly how we want to, to, do, to manage our thoughts because one of them has to do with renunciation uh, and the other one is trying to go to get something and so that's the past and the future uh, so all of that stuff fits right in there together mm -hmm. okay yes this is exactly thanks for bringing that up because it's just more reinforced I like it when students reinforce that I've said something in the sutras <laughs> all right did that answer the question or just yep. agree with you <laughs> yep that was um yeah that was useful because I I wasn't sure if sort of thinking about that was gonna add to the thinking um but I had a feeling that it was the right thing to do. Exactly. Exactly. That in fact, uh, when one sees that the restless mind itself, restlessness, just the monkey mind moving on and on and on and on, that's work. Yeah. If we're going to come to a state of not working, then we need to put that stuff to rest. But another way of looking at it is all of that work that gains no value is actually a form of suffering. Or then in fact suffering is underneath it in the form of there's got to be some basis of that of that restlessness and the answer to that would be some sort of anxiety or anxiousness is based in fear which would be at the bottom of it. Okay, so 
when we look at it from psychology and all of that, we can see that restlessness there. But the important thing that we can see is, is that we are harming ourselves by letting that mind just run and circle around like that. If we're actually going to be practicing harmlessness, then we could bring that puppy in and say, damn boy, be down, you know. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> you don't have to be barking all the time. Yep. And so that's it. I mean, the, the way that the Buddha describes it, I'm putting back into psychological language so that the students can understand it because the way that it's in the sutras like that sounds pretty dry. Mm. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But not but, all students understand the psychology either. <laughs> <to bear with us>. <laughs> <laughs> they can figure things out. <laughs> Well, we do know that you're into sociology, and sociology is the study of the herding instinct. We'll keep it at that level. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that works. That's what the word means, social, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what we mean. We, we socialize. We come yeah. together. We pack it in there. Yeah. We, could, we could call it a bar, a herd, or a home, but it's all the same thing. We come, you know, we come to the pub. Oh, come yeah. to the drinking hole, mm. yeah, and that's just and 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 so sociology is the study of what happens at the drinking hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happens at the drinking hole. Some dukkha. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and not a whole lot of peace and quiet. And so maybe the best thing to do is to walk away from the drinking hole for a while until we can get our minds straightened out. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And get away from it all. This is what seclusion is really all about, is yeah. getting away from the watering hole so that we don't have to deal with yeah. all of the stuff that's there. I really but like then, that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the seclusion helps a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much for letting me blather on like this. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> we'll see you later. Yeah. See you later.